This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie sits down with Deacon Omar Gutierrez, husband and father of four. Deacon Omar is the president and co-founder of the Evangelium Institute, a nonprofit dedicated to providing dynamic catechetical and spiritual formation to adults. In this episode, Deacon Omar discusses how Catholic social teaching is often geared towards doing. What must come first is our being, which is rooted in our relationship with Christ Jesus. He talks about how to transition from a soldier mindset with a need to win to becoming a scout who seeks truth in order to walk alongside others and bring them to Christ. A lot of times the only thing somebody wants, we're so hungry and desperate and thirsty for communion. All they want is somebody to hear them, to listen to them. So if I can do that without reaction, without animosity, without a lack of self-confidence, then I've given them something before I even respond. This is Living the Call. Deacon Omar Gutierrez, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Very, very pleased to be here. I'm super happy to have you. It's always great to have a deacon. I actually just had, uh, I mean, I did a recording. I've had Deacon uh, Harold Burke Sivers on the show, and I just did a recording uh-huh. with um, a, a, a deacon, Dave Arms, A-R-M-S. I don't know if you're familiar with mm-hmm. him, but uh, he has this whole platform that he's kind of building out around the rite of passage. Really interesting. Huh. It's kind of like... Um, huh start as a family thing where he, when he turned 13, I guess his father-in-law and the men in his family would take the 13-year-olds to this cabin and have a weekend Mm. of spiritual and adventure kind of thing. And then when they came back, the idea was they were no longer kids. It was like this rite of passage. And over the years, he's embellished it quite a bit. And, um, and there's like all these kind of like, you know, he's obviously he's Catholic guy, but, but it could be adapted in other faiths. But and we talked a lot about the importance of rite of passage and historical and all this other stuff. So I, I love having deacons on the show because I always learn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, um, that sounds wonderful. I, I don't do the same thing, but I, uh, when my kids, I've only, I have five, the eldest is 17. When he turned 12, he and I went on a trip hmm. uh, and we had some very good conversations and uh, just talked about life and things to be aware of as a, as a young man. Yeah. Uh, and then I have a, a young lady. Um, and then uh, the next one, Antonio, he'll be 12 here soon. So I plan on doing the same thing. Where'd you go on the trip? Denver. And I talk out there. Nice. So it was an excuse to kind of go. And uh, we had sushi downtown and he's an adventurous eater. And so he remembers the the octopus he had and all that. Sure. All that stuff. Those are important moments, uh, like important moments of transition. Mm-hmm. I try to think about like, it, th- there wasn't for me a moment like that, which is what I found interesting about this conversation with, uh, with Deacon Dave was there wasn't mm-hmm. for me necessarily this moment that I recalled is like, okay, I, g- I get back to the house and I'm now in a state of, I'm no longer a kid, right? But it, mm-hmm. it just kind of blew me away that we've lost some of that, right? It, or all of that mm-hmm. in, in the culture, this <laughs> idea of, of having a moment of, of, of inflection in a way where some, yeah. something happens, right? Other cultures have this stuff, um, but not ours. It's like you kind of, if you do, you transition very slowly into yeah. manhood and it's like, uh, and it increasingly it's super blurry, right? So there's this something, I'd never thought of it, yeah. to be honest. I'd never thought about like, oh, this moment, there's a reason for that, Right. In the Jewish faith, mm-hmm. you've got bar mitzvahs and also like there's a reason for it. quinceañeras in our culture, right? So it's like there's yeah, yeah, a yeah. reason for this, but uh, I don't know. It was just, it was, uh, it was really interesting. I've been thinking about that recently I've, uh, with the passing of Pope Benedict. Uh, I've been involved with like lots of sort of going back to his writings and that sort of thing. Yeah. There was a talk about the meaning of freedom. He gave this lecture years ago and it involves two Greek terms. So one of the Greek terms that often is translated as freedom uh refers to the freedom that we get um, by being able to do what we want, the rights to do what we want, mm. but rooted in the, the our duties as citizens. It's an ancient Greek idea. But anyway, the point is that our freedom comes from having a, a home, having a place. Mm. Um, and what struck me about that, I was just reading about it recently, was that that thing that, that you were just talking about, that, that um, rite of passage, presumes there's a place to be a part, a home to be a part of, a culture of people to be a part of. Yeah. And in our culture where 
a lot of what's being heard and understandably so in some situations is a lot of criticism, a lot of denigration, a lot of like, uh, we stink, our past stinks, et cetera. There's, there's no sense of home. So why would there be a, a rite of passage if there's no place to be home? Yeah, that's super interesting. It's like nothing to return to. So why, yeah, yeah. why go on the journey? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating. I was reflecting on Benedict as well um, with his mm. passing. One of the things that always blew me away from him is um, one of the quotes that he said at his installation uh, mass when he became, when he was first elected. And mm. he talked about everybody being an original idea of God. You know, like everybody, mm-hmm. that, that nobody's accidental, everybody's willed and intentional, but th- this, uh, the, the concept of being an idea of the Trinity, you know, like we think it's <laughs> right. like, you know, yeah, yeah, we, we should go for a walk. That's an idea. But they, they thought like, Omar, that's good idea. Let's do yeah. that. Right. It's, right. it just blew me away. It's so simple. Yeah. Oh, I, I, uh, when I give talks and, and teach about this, um, same concept, I always mention that, um, it's not just an idea of the past. Like God continues to think of us, yeah, which is why we exist. Like if he should forget us for a second, we would stop existing. We'd be gone. Yeah. So it's, it's an idea that it continues at all times. And I just, I, yeah. So I, the way I always say it, it's like, and God's thinking of you now mm. and now and now, and now, right? Yeah. The eternal now. And like, and all of you, right? Down to, yes, right. Down right. to the yeah. mole- molecular level, right? It's like every mm-hmm. single thing mm-hmm. that's moving is, is, is the intention and the will of God. Yeah. You, I, I mean, I, I know that you do, uh, obviously, you're, you're uh, president and co founder of the Evangelium Institute. And I know that you're involved mm-hmm. in a lot of, formation, um, spiritual formation, practical applications, which I did kind of want to talk about the sort of practical side of of what you do. But I know that you give talks all over the place. And are you, is there an area that you think about? It's like, okay, this is like a high value. Everything you do, I'm sure is high value, but I'm saying of particular import today. Like when you think about the the things that you're doing or maybe something you're coming across often, what, what is that? What is that thing? Yeah. Uh, the, thanks for asking that. So the, um, so my sort of expertise background is in Catholic social teaching. Uh, and a lot of that social justice stuff, uh, goes in the direction of the emphasis on action and doing. Um, and uh, I've encountered a lot of anxiety yeah. in secular society, but in Catholic society as well around what should I be doing? Mm. What, what should I do? Um, and so we judge each other based on it or we, any number of various things. So um, one of the things that I've, I, I keep saying over and over again, and, and I'm trying to get out there in, in various ways is that the doing has to come after the being and the mm. being has to be rooted in relationship. Mm. Um, so the doing is a fruit, is an outflowing from relationship. Um, so the the anxiety that that we build in our own minds and the the tape that sort of runs in our heads is sort of beating ourselves up all that connected stuff to i'm not doing this right or i'm not doing enough of that 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 self-doubt and self-recrimination that goes away if we can root our doing in being and being in relationship with christ jesus and the, the, the i'm not saying anything new this is all the spiritual masters this is all the churches or the saints that's where it has mm. to be. And if we trust in the Lord, he will help us find the proper doing in the proper time. That relational piece is just so key. Again, it's one of these things that's mm. ever, it's, it's super ancient, of course. It's not, it isn't anything <laughs> new, right? This idea right. of really right. relationship, but but the emphasis on relationship, I'm coming across this really everywhere yeah. is, you know, because in the in the absence of relationship, you have transactions, and, um, <laughs> and then people get frustrated. They get, you know, uh, my, my wife and I run and have run a ministry for homeless families here for 20 years in, in California. And we mm-hmm. obviously do fundraising and mm-hmm. this comes up a lot in fundraising conversations, right? Where it's like, okay, well, you're working with homeless people. Well, you know, how many have you housed and what, what of them are, you know, didn't have a job now do, and now advanced, mm-hmm. have advanced in their education. And all those things are good things. And, 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 right, and right, in fact, right, they right. have happened. But this idea yes. of kind of metricing them, right? So it's, mm-hmm. this is what constitutes whether or not this is a fruitful endeavor among very faithful Catholics. To me, can, yes. the, the downside of that is what you just described, which is like you get flustered and anxious and you're like, okay, well, we're not doing enough. Or, 
And it, and it, it's, it's really struck me. It took me 20 years to figure this out, by the way, because I was like, everybody <laughs> wants to help homeless people, but, but right, it's right. weird. So I, uh, r- relatively recently I was, you know, I've been, I've only been a deacon for, for five years. Me too. Recently I was moved to, um, to Newman Center. So I'm working with a lot of college students. And the, and when I remember when I was that age too, like the, the question we have constantly is, so what should I be doing with my life? What, how should I be focusing? So the, those metrics, those things that drive us, especially as young people is, is key. Absolutely. And it's with age and wisdom and experience that I've come to realize that my value is not in my doing, but in my relationships. Um, and that, uh, again, if I, if I can trust that the Lord has not just my best interests, but the best interests of everyone around me yeah. in his mind in his, and that idea, well, then I can trust that he will lead me. If I'm open, if I cooperate, he will lead me to do the proper thing in the right time. And the fruits will be on his terms, not mine or anybody else's. Or anybody way. else's terms. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and that's the thing, you know, in, in our work, um, there's been families who've been journeying with for 15 years and you're, mm, you're there wow. and, you know, in good times, bad times, you pick them up, uh, mm-hmm. they run into issues and that kind of thing. Um, but there's, there's this idea somewhere, and I think it's just this kind of mythical idea of maybe our culture mm. that there's a moment where you cross a finish line where you can put your hands up <laughs> and just go, like, I made it. But in, in a way, right. that's, it, it's a bit of a false idol, right? Because I, I, well, at least I feel that that finish line is the beatific vision, right? It's like, that's heaven, yeah, and that's the language St. Paul uses, right? I mean, that's, so yeah, the, the desire for that rest, so human, right? The desire to be able to sort of just relax, put up my hands, say, I did it, is a, a, a natural human hopeful desire. But but in our culture, we place it so much in this world and forget that, mm. no, what we're taught in scripture is it's, it's in the next. Mm. It's when we cross that final finish line and we get that laurel wreath and we run the race well and we receive that, that reward when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I'm striving for. That's my moment of rest. Do you find the, the receptive ears among, you know, college age kids to that message that is more relational and maybe less about momentum and ascendancy and kind of the next thing, right? Because it's kind of built into the cake, right? I, I get a job, career, ascent, move on, family, house, car. It's like accumulation. When you say that mm-hmm. in the beginning of the journey to somebody, nobody said it to me, by the way. So, but I'm just curious. Right, me neither. Yeah. If somebody, like, how does that land? It lands very well. So, uh, I'm sure you and I both know that levels of anxiety and depression amongst young people these days are through the roof. Uh, they've been higher than we've ever seen. There's tons of social data about that, and so uh, I've learned uh, the the number and amount of college age students who are on antidepressants is huge. Hmm. Um, you know, well over 50%. Uh, wow. And uh, amongst girls, you know, sometimes well over 70% uh, on average. Um, uh, either at the time that they're in college or at some time during college years. So it's, it's, uh, it's a problem. So when we, w- when we go to them and we say, um, you are not valuable because of what you accomplish, but because of whom what you are in the eyes of the Lord, and he loves you in that way. Um, we, you know, we Americans, we love talking about freedom. Yeah. If you want to talk about freedom, like the freedom from having to perform. Mm. Huge. For someone else. It's a liberation. Yeah. Uh, and especially in a culture where social media says, I have to perform. Mm. I'm valued of my friends, the number of likes I have by what and how I perform. That is just so freeing for it. So it lands very well. Mm. It lands very, very well. I was I was talking to a friend of mine recently about one of the the, the latest trends in in social media, uh, particularly Instagram, is this. Um, I forget what how exactly they call it, but they're they're using you know the traffic mirrors that have that they're like kind of concave mirrors, oh, yeah. so you mm-hmm, don't back mm-hmm. into somebody as you're kind of doing a sharp corner. So taking selfies in those mirrors to kind of um, I guess, disfigure in a way the image because for a long time, Instagram was very much this sort of polished and a lot of like, look how beautiful and perfect everything is and this food and whatever. And now the latest movement is to sort of move away from that and show something that is not perfect, right? But the irony in this is that, of course, now the competitiveness is, is how imperfect can I make the image? So in a way, wow. it's kind of the exact same thing. And ultimately, 
to me, it's this idea of still the, the, the main problem persists is that I am kind of manufacturing and amplifying who I want people to see me as rather than just mm-hmm. recognizing who I am and then engaging with another person in order to discover more about who I am, right? It's still this, this, this kind of distributive approach to, to interaction. And it's, it, it, it defies the promise of social media, which was to unite and bring us together. It's, <laughs> right. it's the exact opposite. Exactly. We're like publishing to one another constantly. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same paradox that we find with, with, you know, with freedom, like the, uh, the freedom is being able to do what I want. Well, then you find yourself enslaved to your own enslaved. sin, right? So now you're less free than you were. Uh, and uh, yeah, the, the paradoxes, the, the lies that continue to be put forward about our being in control that, you know, this is another thing connected to what I was saying before about that in your question about like, um, what's so important for our time right now um, is our ideology over control. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we so want to be in control, even, you know, let, let's presume the good Catholic who's trying to have the good spiritual life. You know, um, there's some evidence where, you know, my control over my prayer time and life is a sign of my uh, righteousness. Yeah. Um, no, it's not, <laughs> right. It's not about control. And that, that idolatry we have uh, about control is, is, um, is killing us. Yeah. And I see this definitely in, in, has a kind of a cultural um, dimension to it. Um, and, uh, I, and I wanted yeah, to get, absolutely. and I wanted to get into this with you. I, I have a, a talk coming up and part of my talk is going to feature maybe a contrast um, between the cultural dimension, kind of a deformation of masculinity in the sense of machismo, which mm. Figures mm-hmm. prominently in in the cultures you and I come from, Absolutely. versus the maybe Anglo variation of that, which is kind of the man cave, right? The sort of you know leave every huh. leave everybody. And I'm trying to kind of you know contrast the Interesting. those two yeah, things. Yeah. But um, in your coming up, because I know that you had a very interesting sort of search for your own kind of identity, right? Of mm. combining all these inputs that you have culturally your parents, uh, multiple mm-hmm. nationalities, the kind of U.S. Mm-hmm. piece, like bringing all of those, all of those things together. Did you wrestle with some of those vestiges of control, machismo, things like that? Have you? Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. I'm a first generation American. Uh, my dad was from the DR, uh, Dominican Republic. My mom from Costa Rica. Uh, they met in this country, married, didn't have a happy marriage. Um, my dad was also black. My mom was white. Um, so the first priest they went to to go marry them refused. This is Michigan in the sixties cause they were mixed race. Mm. Right? Um, and then, uh, my dad was also a communist atheist. My mom was a devout Catholic. Um, so my brothers and I, and we, we, we talk about this, like, uh, our struggle to find our identities and all that, that miasma of stuff was big. So control was big. It's big for all of us. I think my brothers and I. Uh, to be able to to control how other others view me, control yeah. my own life, so that I I grab my identity and I can form it and shape it, um, and and make it work within the context of dysfunctions of home or the vicissitudes of adolescence or, or that kind of stuff. So, control was very much a part of my growing up and trying to figure out what it meant to be me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you got all of them thrown in. You got multiple races too, which I hadn't even considered. Mm-hmm. That's another thing. There is a, a, a tremendous rise right now in the U.S. around multiracial people. That, that's actually, if you look at the census yeah. data, the, the cohort that's grown the, the, the largest has been oh, yeah. has been that. And you have a lot of these um, stories of people trying to sort out, you know, what uh, what to make of that, right? Um, what things to sort of attach to, what things to reject on the basis of that. Now, in a lot of cases, they don't have the orientation that maybe we have uh, as Christians. But when was there a sense, particularly maybe with your with your father and his political uh, ideologies, mm-hmm. was there a sense that you would be disloyal to him if you didn't follow <laughs> in those footsteps? Did you ever? Uh, yeah, good question. Um uh, yeah. Uh, uh, so, I mean, he, he, he never foisted his ideology and he was, I, mean, I, I say sometimes he was a bad communist. I mean, like he, he well, he, he lived in he the U S American life. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so, 
uh, I could tell you stories, but he, um, so, so he never like voiced that kind of stuff necessarily on us, but I do remember vividly this moment. I was recalling this to my brother the other day, uh, was in the car with him and I, uh, whatever. And, uh, I'd been thinking a lot about politics, news and politics were big conversations in our family. And, uh, I remember saying, maybe I was 12. I said something like, uh, you know, I think I'd like to become a politician, right. To try to make the world a better place. Mm. That's what I was thinking. Mm. But all I said was, I think I want to become a politician. My dad spun around. He was not a very talkative fellow. He was a quiet guy. He just spun around and he goes, if you become a politician, I will disown you. <laughs> wow. And it was kind of joking, but it was kind of like, uh, yeah. no. Uh, and, and, you know, because of the corruption of the politics and everything that he grew up with in Latin America, and you and I understand what that means. But, but it was a moment where it really struck me like, uh, yeah, there's a loyalty that my dad expects of me that, is, that goes in variance to where I would like to be. Mm. Um, and of course, then there was the, the faith thing. Um, uh, and then, and, and there were other issues too, but I was very blessed toward the end of his life. He, he died in 2001. I, I helped care for him in the last few months of his life. And so we had some good conversations then, and and there was a lot of healing there. And he did come back to the face. Thankfully, oh, thanks be to God. So, That's awesome. Amen. Now he didn't fo he didn't voice any political ideology on you. Um, would the same be true about the faith dimension? I know your mom was Catholic, but was he um, yeah. sort of passive, accepting, just kind of quiet, or was there an element of anti-faith um, positioning? There was, there was, yeah, there was definitely that. So. Um, he was very happy to, and I'm, I'm very blessed that he, he had a good job and he was able to help me get good, very good education. And we went to Catholic schools, et cetera. But when, you know, my background's in theology, when I wanted to study theology, uh, he was, he would have none of it. Um, really? uh, unlike with my other brothers. And so then, um, so then when, when we would have those conversations every once in a while, he would, he would push, um, he would, he would definitely push on the, the faith stuff, but I would push back. Um, and so I never really got very far. He was mostly passive. Yeah. What, what led him ultimately to that? I mean, obviously the grace of the Holy Spirit, but what, what led him mm -hmm. ultimately back into, or I guess maybe for the first time into a relationship mm -hmm. that was faith driven? Yeah, I think it was, um, you know, the, the kinds of questions one has towards the end of life, um, uh, a look at where he'd been, uh, a look at how, he was an alcoholic, um, uh, an unhappy alcoholic oh. and toward the end of his life. Um, so I, you know, just a little bit of background. I was studying, uh, not to be a priest, but just more theology in Rome was living and studying in Rome. And, uh, I came back at Christmas, uh, and, uh, I saw him very ill, uh, my mom, uh, not doing very well either. And, my three brothers kind of in the wind, like they were all leading their own lives, uh, not really attentive. I'm not saying anything they wouldn't say. Um, and so I said, I, I, I need to come back. I need to help you guys. So I did. Um, and then, uh, and then while I was going to graduate school here in the States, uh, found out he had cancer. And so I dropped everything and came and cared for him. Yeah. Um, and I think he saw that. Uh, so to the practical thing, right? So the, the doing, you know, the, um, I was available and the Lord led me to be there and I was present to him and for him. And I think in the end, he saw that. Um, so that when in the last years, you know, and when you have a cancer, you, you lose taste, you lose a lot of appetite and uh, he wanted ceviche, right? He was like, I just need something I can taste. I want ceviche, but if I'm going to make ceviche, I want, I want red snapper, right? It's the best. But we were in Toledo at the time and he couldn't find Red Snapper. So we drove two hours to downtown Cleveland uh, to the West Side Market uh, to get Red Snapper. So I drove him all the way out there to get. So and he he saw that. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it, it dawned on him. Hey, hey, maybe that's because of the face. Maybe there's something to this. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, the ministry of presence, the, 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 the sort of, mm -hmm. the, 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 just doing it right of living that faith and doing what you do for someone you love, for someone you care for is such a powerful witness. Even when you don't intend it, I'm sure that when you were getting the red snapper, you're not going, 
I'm, I'm hoping he's going to convert tomorrow. Um, but <laughs> no, it's, it's sort of only in like, retrospect that you see it. snapper, really? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. 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 But there's such incredible value to that. And that's why, you know, when you said about, you know, the being precedes the doing and the relationship sort of is the, is the sort of the vehicle of, of all of this, yeah. that again, nothing new, but so powerful when it comes into, um, you know, into play because people recognize that just like we do, we see things and Mm -hmm. then they make an impact. And it's oftentimes when I talk to people about their conversion stories and often they come up, sometimes it's the craziest things. It's the smallest thing. It's, I just, there was something about the way that she, you know, cooked that dish and it was Mm -hmm. done with such love. And I just thought, wow, how does somebody have that kind of love? And I kind of wanted what she had in my own, I'll tell you this funny story, just really quick. Uh, In my own, in my own family, um, my wife is a convert. And um, what first got her, if you ask her now, I don't know if something was working behind Mm -hmm. the scenes, but if you ask her, what was the first thing that started kind of nudging you in this direction? We were bringing up our kids Catholic, even though she wasn't. And Mm -hmm. my daughter went, was a, a kindergartner at the time. Uh, was in Catholic kindergarten and maybe it was first grade and had to come home and build a little shoebox chapel, like a little, you know, project or whatever. (laughs) And she goes and asks my wife, can you print me out a crucifix? My wife was like, okay. And so she prints it out and she had her door closed in the bedroom like the entire time. And um, she, you know, kind of cracks a door open and my wife slips through the piece of paper and then she shuts the door really quickly again. <laughs> and my wife was super curious, like, you know, an hour later, she, she, she turns the doorknob real slow and she kind of peeks into the room. And my daughter is on her knees or a six-year-old girl on oh her knees Lord. in front of this little shoebox. Oh my Lord. And for her, she'll tell that story to this day. She's like, she's like, I really wanted what she had. I couldn't even understand Amen. it. And I'm thinking it's Amen. a piece of paper and a shoebox, right? The frugality mm-hmm. of God, right? It's like the, the, the mm-hmm. smallest things. <laughs> and so it always blows me away, um, you know, when you do hear the story. Do you know that story? Mm. Uh, uh, Whitaker Chambers, he wrote Witness. Beautiful no. book. He's, uh, he was a, 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 a spy for the Soviets here in the United States and had a conversion. And his conversion happened this way. It's like, I just made me think of it. He... Uh, he and his wife are both communist spies, right? So we'll start with that. And they got pregnant mm-hmm. um, and they were fully intending to abort. This is way back in the 30s, oh, right? wow. 1930s. And they were going to go get an abortion because the party comes first and the, 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 the mission, the movement. And then, uh, and then they both kind of like, well, maybe we don't have to. And when they realized the other one realized that they weren't really wanted to do it, they were like, oh, okay, well, let's have the baby. So they had the baby as a little girl. And they still kept on the spy stuff they were doing. And then he was feeding her breakfast one morning mm. and some light from the window came and fell upon her face. And he looked at her ear and he looked at her ear and he said, that is a perfect ear. Mm-hmm. That's the most beautiful ear I have ever seen. And he said to himself, that ear can't be an accident. And from that moment, he realized he couldn't be a communist anymore. Boom. It still gives me goosebumps just, just thinking about it. like, it could be the craziest thing. It could be the littlest thing. I forget. Or it could be the relationships yeah, that we have as well. The long-term sort of consistency of being there for someone. Yeah, exactly. It's like, um, what's the Zen image of, of the, there's something about like snow and it begins to pile up on a branch and the branch just slowly kind of starts to bend and it <laughs> takes a long time, right? And it, 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 so there, there are those moments where that happens. By the way, the inverse is also true. The, and I'm sure maybe since you've been ordained, you've, you've, you've come to recognize this more so. Mm-hmm. I certainly have. But it works in the opposite direction too. The reasons why sometimes people abandon faith or abandon uh, certainly organized religion sometimes can mm-hmm. sound outwardly very small. I remember. Um, right. Yes. Yes. It's true. Very good. I yeah. remember one time, just as an example, well, it, certainly in formation, people would say, it's like, listen, guys, you know, there will be the woman who walks up and, you know, to mm-hmm. receive communion and she's scantily dressed. She's maybe has cleat. Like you have to really be govern your eyes. And it wasn't a moral Mm -hmm. point they were making. Of course we should be, we shouldn't be, you know, seeking uh, concupiscence, et cetera. But they were actually saying a very practical thing. It's like, if people catch you staring at this lady in the wrong way. It's a pastoral thing. Exactly. It's like this huge thing. But I remember talking to this one lady at a garage sale one time 
and I was wearing something that identified me as a Catholic. I used to wear a lot of these T-shirts that were like conversation mm-hmm. starter kind of things, right? <laughs> and um, or like a or or like a Cairo or like a, I don't know something. Yeah. Sure. And she pointed yeah. at it. She's like, uh, "Oh, are you Catholic?" I said, yeah, "Yeah, I'm Catholic." She's like, "I used to be Catholic," and I said, "Oh, I'm sorry to hear that," <laughs> which is probably not what she was yeah. expecting. It's like, "I'm sorry to hear that." Right. And uh, and she proceeded to tell me why she had left the church. And she said it was because in the Catholic church, we have a corpus on the cross. And here I was, that was it. I was thinking like, okay, wow. give me some deep Pauline principle, like so, hit me with something, <laughs> you know. <laughs> exactly. It sure does not like a mean priest in this story or something. Exactly. Yeah. But it, there wasn't, although there are those, right? Yeah. Um, sure, sure. Or somebody got into a car fender bender in the parking lot. I, it's just like all this weird stuff. And like she jettisoned, uh, you know, the, the 2000 year tradition mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. for the lack of the corpus on the cross. And I was like, you know, I kind of said, look, I've got crosses in my house that don't have a corpus, but, and I've got crucifixes yeah. too. So, but it seemed yeah. to me silly, but at the same time, it's like, it was a moment for me to recognize the importance and the weight mm-hmm. of certain things, particularly for clergy, Yes, yes. you know? <laughs> it gave me so many things and the slides can set, set somebody off, but, but it, 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 the, the other story I have is my brother, my older brother who uh, used to live in LA for years. He was um, out there to do the movie thing and script writing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, fell away from the church when he was 16 uh, never looked back. Uh, but then when, you know, I got married and I was the first of my brothers to get married and start having kids he would come out and visit, great uncle, you know, love the kids, et cetera. And then he'd go back to LA and he'd come out and he'd visit and he'd go back to LA and he'd come out and visit. And he went back to LA and he would say, I'm, I'm miserable. Yeah. And, and everybody around me is miserable. Um, but I go and visit my brother and he's happy and the kids are happy and his friends are happy and I, I want that. And it's the everyday stuff. You're like changing diapers and making breakfast. And, yeah, you know, it's not like you're sick. Exactly. You're not like come on and a family retreat. We talk about the faith in front of Yeah, exactly. Right. We would we would avoid talking because we didn't know, like, I, I don't want to offend you, Milan, or whatever. Um, but but just the the that witness of, of, I don't know, happiness, stability, right, um, was enough for him to say, yeah, I, I need I need better. It's, I want better. It's a really weird thing too, because I live in LA and I work <laughs> in Hollywood, and 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 I have for many years. But the mm-hmm. level of palpable, visible um, sadness and sometimes mm. just misery that that you see among it breaks your heart, right? It does, and and so like uh, you know, I'm all, I'm always on one of my kind of homiletic thematics, if there is such a thing, yeah. is I'm always talking about the margins mean something different depending on where you are. Amen, amen. You know, it's a, exactly some guy in like Bel Air waxing his Maserati may be the <laughs> margins, right? For for mm-hmm. me in my in this moment, maybe mm-hmm. maybe part of what I'm supposed to be doing is thinking of him or her, even though from an outward vantage point, they've got everything, right? Got in quotes, right? They've got everything. They've got the money. They've got the position, the prestige, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it just doesn't, it doesn't fulfill. No. That, so I was talking to a dad, he's a granddad, uh, raises family. He's got grown kids. They're having kids. Everybody's Catholic, right? Sort of nominally. Um, but there are a couple that are sort of, you know, away and they, they've got various ideas that he doesn't agree with. And, and so we were sharing over lunch. He just, he just feels like I'm a failure. Mm. You know, I'm a, I'm a failure as a, as a father I'm a failure. I'm, I'm doing the best I can as a grandfather. And so the margins for that guy was like, uh, again, it's not about the doing. Um, and you were faithful as you knew best at the time, which is absolutely true in his case. Um, and, and just to minister to him in that moment, um, someone in deep pain. One, one of the things in formation for the diaconate that we kept receiving and I've always sort of stuck with me is, is being present um, to the servant ministries of Christ, but being present to the pain in others, mm. um, to, to be listening for their, for their pain. Uh, so as you mentioned, the woman, we like the, the corpus and the cross or whatever it is, like in every conversation to be a, a listening for the pain in the other not so that I can fix it, I can't fix it, but to to point them, to know how to point them towards the the physician who can take it away. Yeah. The other good thing about relationship is it's always a two-way thing because I remember mm-hmm. that exchange with the woman with the crucifix, 
but there's a lot of formation that happened in me by virtue of that, right? So mm. a lot of this idea that, and I think it's something that maybe befalls clergy more than others, but this notion that um, you're there to minister. And of course we do, we do, we do minister mm-hmm. and, and, and we've devoted our lives to, to this vocation. But at the same time, the way that God will use everything, every exchange, every interaction, every relationship, and it, it's not just in one direction, right? So I, I, I don't know if you've yeah. experienced this, but especially as a, you know, notable presenter and speaker, but you might, you know, walk into a room and here you are, you're going to do this great thing. And when you walk mm-hmm. out, you're like, wait a minute, some, something changed in me. And you, I, I was anticipating to be the one doing the forming, right? The ministering, that kind of thing. <laughs> it always surprised me. It doesn't happen always, but, um, but just the way that that works is just so God's style. You know, yeah, no, that that um, my experience of that thing is uh, going into a, a a talk where I already have everything planned out. Maybe I've given it like 50 times, whatever. Um, and maybe it's the same thing. Maybe it's a little bit different. Um, but the reactions, of course, are always different. But coming out with that feeling of uh, that I wasn't in control yeah. just then. Yeah. Um, that sense of, uh, okay, yeah, I, I really am being faithful to the Lord because he was clearly in control just now for the last 45 minutes, uh, not me. Um, and then being, you know, hopefully being able to have the time and take that to prayer and being present with that. Um, and to remind myself that when I don't feel like I'm always (laughs) faithful to the Lord and say, no, but you, you have been, and he's shown that to you in those moments. Mm -hmm. And then we're back to the control thing again. What, yeah, right, exactly. You know, in particular, maybe going back a little bit into your story on the subject mm-hmm. of race that you talked about, this is an area that I think um, there's a lot of elements of control that are at play here, irrespective of how you view a lot of what's happening in the country from a racial, uh, you know, perspective. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that um, that there's a lot of this you know, desire to right the wrongs of the past and using yeah. tools that are not equipped for it are not ultimately good for it, but it gives us a sense of control to say, okay, yes. well, there's been great injustice. Uh, you know, I've suffered a lot of discrimination. Per, you know, I grew up in, my high school years were spent in, in, in Florida. Okay. So I, I you know, mm-hmm. I, I, and I took the public school bus to get, you know, to, to school in, in, in high school, mm-hmm. which you're automatically mm-hmm. like you're putting yourself in a category to get beat up. And I did um, a lot of times <laughs> because sorry. people, yeah, a lot of times because people would, you know, think you call me nasty names and things like that. But, you know, oh, yeah. we would, you know, most of the time we just in my case of experiencing prejudice and racism, it, it usually was a quick scuffle and then in a lot of cases that I ended up hugging it out with the kid and we'd end up becoming friends, but it was like violence huh. first and then, and then sort of friendship. <laughs> other, other, other people experience very different forms of prejudice and racism. And I understand yeah. that there's lots of permutations, but this sense of like controlling this and saying, now mm-hmm. I'm going to take this and I'm going to do something about it. And I'm going to fight the mm-hmm. power. And you can understand where it comes from, that's, but it can be yeah. so quickly deformed. Oh, yeah. Okay. Thank you. So that's, that's what I keep going on about. So like the, so if we take away truth, which a lot of, a lot of our culture does, the only thing that's left for me to determine what's right and wrong, because we're built to want to know what's right and wrong. We, we have this interior desire for justice. We do, right? Um, maybe it's my own definition of it, but it's, we all have this. The only thing left for me if I take out truth is power. Wow. I determine what's right and wrong based on who has power and who doesn't. Yeah. The guys with power are, are clearly evil. The guys who don't are clearly good. And that's all I need to know. So then all of my functioning is how do I wrest control from those who have it and give it to those who don't? And I'm, I'm defining control and power here very narrowly uh, as socioeconomic political power, uh, ignoring that there are all kinds of other powers. There's relational power, right? Um, there's the power of art. There's a the power of story. So... Um, so that, that's the dynamism mm. of our culture that's behind a lot of this. And it could be race, it could be any number of various things, but that's sort of the, the, the dynamic. So, so if, we, if, we, if we can go back to truth, but then um, uh, give up this, this idolatry of power and control, then we can begin to start talking about relationship. And, and our desire, by the way, for this power and control 
is to try to find the home, which I talked about before. Like we, we, we want to be in a place. We have to be because we desire communion so deeply. So uh, I'm going to define that this way or that way by this race or that identity. Uh, but the reason we're so atomized, so distracted and d- d- divided is because as a culture, um, we failed and continue to fail uh, to, to create a, a communal um, identity mm. around something that exists outside of us. Faith used to do that. Family used to do that. Um, civics used to do that, right? But almost all of that has been thrown aside. That is deep. Uh, in particular, the idea that justice is a good, the desire for justice, right? To make things right. Well, God mm-hmm. is the ultimate rightness. God is the ultimate justice. So it, it, right. it has to, by definition, emanate that initial desire has to emanate from him. We should want things to be right, to be rightly ordered. Exactly. All of that is true, but it's when you orient it to this, if you look at the ingredients of justice and the key ingredient is power or having a say over someone else, then what you want to do is redistribute that. And of course, and you with a communist dad, I mean, it's like, that's like the hallmarks of, you know, communism, Marxism, et cetera. It's like, it's super, you know, write it on a piece of paper. It's like, yeah, it makes sense. Like, you know, we, we Absolutely you have everything and we want to just give us some stuff. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but it's, it, it gets so thwarted when you orient, when it's not properly ordered, right? When it's not properly exactly. ordered to the right, to the right thing. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. And, 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 you know, what's the result of then in your experience when, when we do kind of orient ourselves incorrectly, I mean, I guess we just get what we have now. So, so what ends up happening is what I call oppositionist thinking, right? It's the, the only option, the paradigm for thinking and viewing others is in opposition. Uh, are they on my side or aren't they? Um, and then what happens in the faith is um, I get to determine how good or bad a Catholic you are based on oh, yeah. the degree to which you are helping the right powers, Um and I get to determine who are the right, correct powers. Uh, and, then, and, then, and then we're lost, right? We're no longer talking about Jesus. So when I talk about Catholic social teaching, uh, when I write about it and I teach about it, you know, the, 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 it seems ridiculous, but the first thing has to be Jesus. Amen. The first and last thing has to be Jesus. And if we don't have Jesus in the middle, if rather we've inserted power and control instead of Jesus, um, then we're not talking about social teaching anymore. We're not talking about Catholic social teaching anyway. I read something you wrote, or maybe it was something you said um, about political homelessness, and that yeah. and that that should be a, um, you know, in a way, should be kind of an orientation for for Catholics, yes. or at least an, or at least a uh, an acknowledgement that we were we're going to be politically right. homeless. And if you know anything about the faith, you know that to be true, because not just in our country, in any country, if you look at political platforms. None of them are going to conform precisely to what the faith teaches, precisely because they're not the faith. But this assumption that, you know, this, you know, theory of opposition or or oppositional thinking is so prevalent now precisely because I think our expectation is that, you know, this is more good. It's kind of Orwellian in a way. It's like this is more good <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Than, than, than this. Therefore, I'm putting all my energy behind this and I'm just, you know, then Jesus is completely out of the equation and you're, you're, you're more concerned. And not that people shouldn't be, you know, good people running political. Of course, we all want good, decent people. No, no, yeah. But, but my point is that the orientation, the power, the energy, the enthusiasm is so focused on these either either political ideologies or what have you, and it does seep into the church. Um, I've seen a lot of yeah. this. You know, my wife and I, as I've mentioned to you, are very active in, in homeless ministry. We're also very active in pro-life ministry. But, you know, what breaks my heart constantly yeah. is that I don't mm-hmm. see a lot of my— the, the pro-life Catholics, the, the pro-life circles I run in, when I start talking about homelessness, it's like a, it's like a little bit of a cognitive dissonance. Crickets. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and my friend mm-hmm. uh, Gloria Purvis, who's who, who talks a lot about oh, yeah. race, she says the same thing. Mm-hmm. She's like, "Listen, if I'm talking to my pro, you know, my social justice oh, friends, it's like, wait, what? what? Mm-hmm. And the same thing on the other side. Mm-hmm. If I'm talking to my you know mm-hmm. pro life friends about social justice, they're like, wait, what? 
And uh-huh. and we're a both and proposition. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this came home to me so vividly years ago. This is in the height of the immigration um, arguments in, in D.C. and everything and at the border, 2013, 2014. And I was given a presentation on, on immigration, immigration policy with the church's teaching. And this guy um, asked me in the presentation, he said, an older gentleman who I knew was very involved with the pro-life movement, and he said something to the effect of, well, you know, if if they're having struggles supporting their family where they're from, how, why don't they just have fewer kids? Mm. Um, and and I bring it up because I know, I know that guy yeah. is 100% behind the church's teaching on pro-life and on the meaning of sexuality, et cetera. And he would never say that in any other situation. But because it was about immigration, he did. Now, to his credit... I always say this a couple of weeks later, he was visiting my parish. He came up to me afterwards and he apologized. Uh, he said, I, I shouldn't have said that. I was, I was out of line. I apologize. Um, so he recognized it. God bless him afterwards. But yeah, there's, there's this dissonance, this cognitive dissonance, um, uh, regarding, you know, certain issues that we can't see the both and we can't see that connection. Yeah. This is one of the things I always uh, talk about too, in terms of, the struggles or obstacles that go with uh, teaching the social teaching of the church is um, uh, you, you know what you believe politically, right? And, and so most Catholics can tell us what the USCCB, what the U.S. bishops tell us about this or that political issue, but we never get to the underlying principles that connect yeah. our position on immigration or the death penalty with our pro-life position and war. Like we almost never talk about those fundamental principles to connect those issues so that when there's an issue that comes up in these bishops, well, I don't need to listen to them. What do they know? Uh, they should stick to theology. Happens all yeah. the time. It's sort of, a, it's an, ex- yes, it it's an ex- left and right. It's, a, it's an extension of the biblical principle of the rich man, right? It's like, well, you know, I believe yes. everything you're saying and I, I'm, I'm right with you there. Jesus is like, okay, well then go sell everything you have and follow me. He's like, oh, well, I can't do that. Come on. It's like you, that, <laughs> the last, the last thing you're not prepared to let go of and maybe that is that sort of political um, desire. And look, for, uh, you know, I'm not immune to this, right? I I have my no, own no 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 my own Amen, my man. own political ideology uh, ideological sensibilities. Everybody is somewhere on this spectrum. If there is a right mm-hmm. and left, you're somewhere along that line. Um, and so we have our own proclivities. We see something. We're like, oh, the government is so inefficient. There should be less of it. Or boy, look at these problems. We should have, the government should do more about this. Like I get that there's that. And I, and in some cases I come across things and I I chafe when I hear them, but then I have Mm -hmm. to, like what I'm trying to learn now more is go, uh, you know, hear the thing, take it on board, react the way you're going to react, but now try to dig a little bit deeper and find out, well, is that coming? Does, does the reasoning behind that conform to the faith? Is there something fundamentally wrong in it? Or is it just me kind of reacting because it's a, it's a, a modality to solve an issue or attack a problem that's different than the one that I would pursue. And it's, it's a really nuanced for, at least for me, because, uh, you know, oh, I, yeah. I, I'm a little bit of a hothead. So like, if I he- see something, I'm like, oh, I want to respond to it. But now I've been trying to discern a bit more. And frankly, the, the, you know, um, this talk about racism has been one of those areas because there was a time in, in my past, I'd say like, listen, I know what prejudice and racism is, you know, it's like mm-hmm. I've shed blood literally uh, uh, around, <laughs> you know, racist uh, exchanges and that kind of thing. So don't come tell me about it. Right. But it's like, that mm-hmm. is, that's me responding to a, uh, a disagreement with a prescription to do something around the issue. Well, wh- where can we unify around what the issue is and what drives it and the sin of racism and those things that, mm. that hasn't been always in my, in my personal experience, the first thing I reach for, right? It hasn't been that, like, where can be, where can we unite? So I say all these things with a big caveat that I am not at all perfect in this, (laughs) but I'm running into it much more. This, 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 this binary, kind of like polarized churchy thing where it's like, oh, we're the, this kind of Catholic and you're the, that kind of Catholic. And there's a lot of suspicion. And and I don't think that that's, that's healthy. No, and it, you know who it hurts a lot is uh, our young people, but also converts. So I can't tell you how many converts I've I've met who brought them through RCA or whatever, and they'll say, 
you know, my, my first few years of being Catholic was so disorienting because I felt like I was in a minefield. I felt like if I said the wrong thing with the wrong group, I was like, oh, well, I guess Catholics, we don't, we don't agree with that political opinion. But then I'm in a different group and, oh, I, I guess I, I'm not supposed to. So they're struggling to find what it means to be Catholic. And then they have all these other Catholics kind of judging them for not having the right Catholic view that based on some sort of political ideology. When in reality, as you said before, like we're not going to have, you know, straight down the line semblance with any platform. Um, we follow Christ Jesus, Christ crucified. That's the race we're fighting or, or running, not any other. Amen to that. So as a thought leader then in the space, I, I, not to put you on the spot, but I will. What do you think are... Um, what are, what are things that we need to emphasize? Obviously, Christ crucified, of course, like the, the, the centerpiece of everything, but maybe back to the practical things that you do mm -hmm. um, in the Institute. What are things that we can do or recommend practically around bridging this divide or this or creating more of a space to actually look at things not so suspiciously on either side mm -hmm. of these arguments, whether right, political right, exactly. or church-based? So, so my struggle in... in being able to live it practically is uh, twofold. One, never feeling like I have the co confidence enough in knowing what I believe to be able to listen, mm. right? Um, there's a great book that came out a couple of years ago called uh, Soldier Versus Scout Mindset. I think it's maybe just called The Scout Mindset. And Julia Gallif is the author, secular thinker. But the idea is a very basic idea, which is um, most of us have a soldier mindset when we go into a discussion. And what does a soldier do? A soldier wins. Um, and he does anything to win, right? Whereas a scout will go out. Now, what I love about this analogy is the scout is still on a side, right? Uh, nobody's suggesting you not have a side or opinion, right? The scout still has a side, but the scout look goes out to find the truth mm. and accurately to report it back so that you can better mount a better argument, right? So uh, I find a hard time having and fostering a scout mindset if I'm not clear what I believe, right? Um, so knowing what I believe, why I believe it is a good first step. Um, the, the second reason I have a hard time having a scout mindset um, is uh, if I'm not at peace uh, with in my relationship with the Lord. Hmm. So if I feel like your ideas are an attack against me, um, then my mind starts with the self-recrimination and all the wounds that come out and I need to prove myself and I stop thinking entirely. I'm just reacting, right? But if I can live in the interiorness of peace, the beautiful book by Father Jacques Philippe, The Searching for and Maintaining Peace. He's one of my I favorites. I give that to everybody. Yeah, he's awesome. Right? He's awesome. I just give it to everybody. Yeah, phenomenal. Absolute key, right? If I can maintain that peace with the Lord and right, know what I believe, then that allows me to have the scout mindset so I can have the conversation with you and hear and listen. Oh. And a lot of times the only thing somebody wants, we're so hungry and desperate and thirsty for communion. All they want is somebody to hear them, to listen to them. So if I can do that without reaction, without animosity, without you know, um, a, a lack of self-confidence, then, then I've given them something before I even respond. Right? And then if I know and if I have peace, then I can respond and we can both learn together and build communion and then hug it out, and hug it out. Right, uh, afterwards. Yeah. I love the scout and soldier metaphor too, because the, the, the scout, the, the, it's awesome. Yeah. And the scout uh, metaphor also presupposes that you're going to be in sort of enemy territory, right? Air quotes again. Yes. You have to go into that argument, understand its facets. But of course, you come from a side, so you better be grounded in what you what you're, what you believe and what you understand and know. Exactly. But you go out to suss it out, to um, to confirm or disconfirm your biases, to 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 relate, to engage. I mean, there's a lot of great mm -hmm. lessons in that mm -hmm. in that metaphor. Um, and I never heard it uh, positioned that way. Father Jacques is, I mean, that guy's amazing. It's right? just uh, super. I told a buddy of mine recently, because um, he was asking me, It was. I'm sure you've had conversations like this with people who, are, who don't share our faith, but I've had a conversation mm -hmm. with him recently and he was like, well, you know, how do you do it? It's like, how, he's going through a job thing and his wife is all, mm -hmm. there's like a bunch of things going wrong. And I said, and, I, and what I told him, I was like, listen, man, the bullets are the same. It's the armor that's different. Right. And it's mm. like, to me, it was uh, what I was trying to show like him that. is that, 
and maybe it is that interior peace. It's not that things stop coming. It's not that, right. you know, you're going to uh, suddenly agree with everybody or walk into a room and everybody loves you. It's not about that. It's just how do you contend with that in, in, interiorly? And then are you, you know, oriented to this peace, which part of it at least is recognizing the sisterhood and brotherhood of the people that you're interacting with. I was like, Amen. That's really what it's about. But we've we've got a we've got a ways to go, brother. I think on this one, especially Amen. lately. Um, so uh, you know, for what it's worth, we can get this uh, this message out as far and wide in the different venues that we operate, and I think it'd be a good thing. Amen. Amen. Deacon, before we get to our final segment, which I'm waiting for, I'm sure yeah. you are too. Um, wait, what? <laughs> with bated with breath. breath <laughs> I wanted to give folks a chance to. Um, you know, follow along with what you're doing at the Institute, maybe, you know, upcoming things, upcoming speaking engagements. Like how did, how do folks like keep tabs on what you are up to? Great. There's a couple different ways. So, uh, omargutierrez.com, uh, is one place you can find my, uh, writings and the stuff I have available, but, uh, eicatholic.org, uh, eicatholic.org is the Institute and the work we do, the various lessons we give. We, we just got some good news. We are going to be, um, producing a, a Catholic hour, radio show on the local non-denominational Christian radio stations. The first time they've ever had Catholics nice. actually present, right? So it's a big audience here in the Midwest, um, into Iowa and Nebraska and other places. So we're going to start producing that soon. And then we're going to try to uh, take some of that material and put it in podcast form. So some of our people here. So uh, all that will be on eicatholic.org in the short order. That's awesome. Well, we'll include all that information in the show notes, as well as some of the references to material and other uh, personalities we've talked about on the show so that people can follow along. Awesome. What a great privilege to have you on the show. Um, love to have you, you back. Great conversation. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and again, encourage everybody to follow along with what you're doing, because I think this is precisely the kind of stuff that we need to be talking about and we need to be doing it from the right, uh, you know, from the right orientation, the right vantage points, uh, scouts, yeah. not soldiers. Awesome. All right. You ready to play? Wait, what? Yes, please hit me. All right. So easy one to start Deacon question. Number one, which of the following three statements is false about your hometown of Omaha, Nebraska? Okay. Is it A, the Henry Dorley Zoo in Omaha is home to the world's largest indoor swamp? Is it B, the official state soft drink of Nebraska is Kool-Aid? Or is it C, the first National Bank of Omaha building was once the tallest building in the country? Which of those is false? I think C is false. And you'd be correct. I knew you'd be good at this. Yes. Whew, it was, it was actually at one point the tallest uh, building west of the Mississippi, but never was the tallest building in yeah, the country. Yeah. And it is true that apparently, I had no idea, that you guys have a giant swamp. We have a, gr we have a great zoo. We have like top three zoos in the country. Our zoo is ridiculously amazing. Well, apparently it also has the world's largest swamp, which is uh, quite the <laughs> distinction. Right. And it is true that <laughs> that Kool-Aid was actually invented at Omaha, so it therefore is the the, the state soft drink. Yeah. Um, okay. Exactly right. Doing really good. Uh, all right. So question number two. I know we communism, as we've discussed, plays a role in your story. Uh, so fill in the blank in this communism-related question. In 1937, Pope Pius XI described the lack of reaction to the persecution of Christians in communist countries as a conspiracy of blank. Gosh. Pope Pius XI described I, the lack of reaction as a conspiracy of blank. I, I have no idea except to say something like... Uh, Conspiracy of uh, of of, of uh, atheism. I don't know what. Yeah, it, what? it was in response to atheism, but it was oh, and communism, but it was a conspiracy of silence, a conspiracy oh. of silence. In fact, in that same year, he issued uh, the encyclical Divini Redemptoris, which condemned communism and the Soviet regime. Uh, it turns out he actually, uh, I guess, sent off a. Uh, a Jesuit bishop to go and consecrate uh, other bishops to go make bishops, but that didn't work because everybody had been sent off to gulags or they'd been, you know, killed <laughs> by the Soviets. So, but yeah, the uh, the dictate uh, the conspiracy of silence is what he called it. All right, Batten five hundred. He was a brave man. Yeah, he was a good man. certainly was. Final question, Deacon. We've talked yeah. uh, some about race, obviously, and the reality mm -hmm. of the sin of racism. 
Servant of God, Sister Thea Bowman knew a thing or two about this, the granddaughter of a slave born in 1937. She converted to Catholicism at age nine. She joined the novitiate of a religious order in Wisconsin at 15 and became a teacher, giving lessons about the beauty of racial diversity and advocating for increased representation of blacks in church leadership. In 1989, she gave an impassioned speech about her identity as an American black Catholic to this Catholic body. What body did she speak to? Uh, the U.S. Bishops? The USCCB, yes! The USCCB, yeah. You ripped uh, defeat out of the jaws, or victory out of the jaws of defeat, my friend. That's very good. <laughs> yeah, in fact, her, her speech is, uh, you can still see it on, on YouTube and Vimeo and places like that. Uh, but uh, yeah, she's servant of God and has a super interesting story um, and actually taught a lot about, um, at a, talk about a time when it wasn't hip to do it. Uh, talked a lot mm-hmm. about, you know, the, the black experience and that kind of thing in a ca- in Catholic circles. So um, check mm-hmm. her out. Uh, Servant of God, Sister Thea Bowman. Were you familiar with her? I wasn't that familiar with her. I had, yeah, no, I had know a little bit about her. Um, I think was she, she was a Sacred Heart sister, I want to say. Or I don't I, remember I the anyway, order. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I had her. I knew she was Servant of God. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, we'll pray for her intercession and maybe she'll move yeah. on uh, to beatification at some point. Venerable comes first. Well, awesome. Again, Deacon, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for stopping by and our prayers for the continued prosperity of your ministry and everything that you're doing. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks for having me. God bless. And if you're listening to our voice, that means it's time to subscribe. Send this episode to somebody who might benefit from that idea of scouting versus soldiering. There's a lot of folks um, who can benefit from that and everything else that we've discussed. We'll see you again next time on Living the Call. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.